Tonight's presentation is called Breakthrough Dating. I guess the title deserves a quick moment. The concept of breakthrough is not more of the same, less, more, slightly different. The concept of a breakthrough is completely different. So we're looking to create a breakthrough, I think, in three areas. One is the process of dating itself. Second, to keep focused on what it is we really want. In terms of the ingredients we're looking for in a relationship that's going to be long-term. And number three, that the breakthrough we're looking for should lead to actual marriage itself, preparation for marriage. I've divided this presentation into four parts. One is staying focused on what we're really looking for in the dating and marriage process. Two, identifying the known blocks that sabotage both successful dating and marriage itself. And three, listing three, four simple, amazingly effective strategies to create breakthrough in dating. And lastly, a summary and conclusion. I would like to start off with the following. Some of you have heard of Malcolm Forbes. He was a billionaire. He passed away uh, a number of years ago. And actually, the same year that he passed away, he threw a se his 70th birthday in his estate in Europe, where he showed off 25,000 acres of land, a gorgeous mansion, and he, Bli Ayan Hara, was also showing his financial statements. You want louder? His financial statements, which amounted something like $7 billion in cash, no liens. And he invited dignitaries, politicians, famous thinkers like Ringo Starr, Michael Jackson, to his estate. And as he's showing them through his grounds, he makes an offer. And the offer is, anyone who can swim the width of my Olympic-sized swimming pool can have either my 25,000-acre estate, or my $7 billion in cash, or he can have my only daughter and heir in marriage. Small print, the swimming pool is filled with sharks and alligators. <laughs> Everyone turns down the kind invitation and walks to lunch, and on their way, splash! They turn around, oh my gosh, I can't believe it, someone has actually jumped in. And within two seconds, he's out the other side, dripping wet. If Mark Spitz was there, who won the five gold medals, he would have taken his hat off to him. And Malcolm Forbes walks over to this young man and says, Young man, I'm, I'm, I commend you for your courage. Tell me, what do you want? You want my 25,000 acre estate? And he's dripping wet. He says, No, sir. He says, You want my $7 billion cash, no liens. No, sir. Smart kid. I have to assume you want my only daughter and heir in marriage. And he's still going, No, sir. I don't understand. You don't want my money, you don't want my estate, you don't want my daughter. What do you want? I want to know the name of the dude that pushed me into the pool. 
<laughs> Sometimes the direction we're going in is not because I've chosen this direction I'm really running away from where I'm coming from. Sometimes I say, you know why I'm here? Because my parents, they messed me up, you cannot believe, big time. You know why I'm here? It was my environment, my schooling, the Rebbe, the teacher. My mindset is all twisted. I'm so confused, I have no clarity. And I start looking at outside items to say that's where the cause for where I am right now. You know, in Hebrew, it's interesting. How many ways do we say why? why? Yeah. Lama. Madua. Thank you. Now, Hashem, in His infinite wisdom, He could have chosen one why. Why do we have two? It has to be that there's a distinction between the two of them. What's the distinction between Lama and Madua? And the power of this distinction opens up a totally new dimension in understanding past and future. Whenever we see the Targum in Chumash translate Madua, the translation is Madain. What's this? The why of Madua is asking us to look back and analyze how it came to be this way. Why the Mercedes was going 120 miles an hour through the tunnel at 2 o'clock in the morning and who these reporters were and the incident happened already. She's gone. But there's a curiosity that Madua, why? Give me the analysis, give me the information that unfolded to the event itself. It doesn't change the result but somehow there's a satisfaction in analyzing and understanding how it came to be. That's Madua. But it doesn't necessarily change anything from now onwards. Lama is a totally different why. Lama translates the Targum Lamadain. Lamad Ma. To what is this leading? For what is this purposeful? There are two ways to ask why. When I ask, why me? Why is it that I'm not yet married? Why is it that I haven't lost weight? Why is it that this always happens to me? Why is it that people pick on me? Why is it my boss is always abusive? As long as I stick in the madua, what I'm really asking is to check out the past and figure out analytically what were the events that led up to who I am and where I am in my position in life now. But Lama is a totally different why. It propels me into the future. To what is this purposeful? Where is this leading? What are the lessons that I can glean from this financial setback, this medical setback, this relationship that didn't work? What are the lessons I can take that will make me stronger for the future? Where am I swimming? Forward, because there's something I'm swimming towards. Or, I'm running away from the sharks. I'm running away from pain. What I want to analyze at this point is the following. When you and I look back 120 years and we ask ourselves, well, what really counted in life? What was really precious to Hashem? Which is the greater measure of happiness and success in our lives? How long I lived? 
or how I used my time? How much money I made? Or how I earned my money with integrity, honesty, how I spent my money, spent less than I earned? Wow! And invested the difference in my own future. How I gave tzedakah, charity, appropriately. What's going to count more in life? How many years I was married versus another person? Or how I treated my spouse and how my spouse treated me? What's going to count more? How many kids I brought into the world? Or how I raised them? How high did I climb the corporate ladder? Or how did I treat my employees, paying them on time? Or if I was an employer, that if I was an employee, how did I devote myself integrity-wise to the job at hand? How careful was I with my health? Is that what's really going to count? Or what came out of my mouth? How I treated other people with gentle words as opposed to sharp words? What's going to count after 120 years? How many lives I, I touched and changed? Or how hard I worked to change myself? Even the Vilna Gaon interestingly says that it's a greater effort to change myself than to change thousands of people. And the accomplishment of changing myself is considered a great accomplishment. What's the logic behind that statement? Because even if a person has information or clarity that he shares or she shares with thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of people, they still have to exercise their Bechira, their free will to change themselves based on the information. They may have been inspired, they may have taken the information and used it, but who used it? They had to use it. They owned the choice that they made. But when a person, even if he's affecting thousands of people, changes something in their own character, in their own personality, <coughs> in the challenge of conquering anger, in the challenge of finding meaning in adversity, in the challenge of getting along with someone who's very different to me, in changing myself, no one but me owns that change. And therefore, Changing myself is a greater accomplishment than affecting change in tens of thousands of others. What's going to count more in my relationships and in my own growth? How many dates I went on before I was married? Or how many lessons, how many insights I was able to take from the dating process and incorporate it in preparing myself for a better spouse, in shaping my personality. What's really <coughs> going to count? 300 dates, 400 dates, or the 300 lessons, 400 insights that add up to an accumulation of who I'm becoming in preparation for who I'm going to be married to. Who I am becoming is the greatest accomplishment I can ever create in my life, married or not married, raising children or not raising children, in the workplace, outside of the workplace. How much less suffering I have than my neighbor? 
well, is that really where we are measured? If I have less suffering than another person, that makes me better in any way, superior in any way, had a more comfortable life in any way? Is that the true measure? Is that what's truly precious? Is that what's going to count in my life after 120 years? Or how each individual responded to their personal challenges? The bottom line is the following. What's going to count in a long-term relationship, in a marriage? How most similar we are and how less different we are? Or how we manage the differences? Which of the two is it going to really be? And even if I find someone that I feel, I can't believe at last, I can't believe at last, here's someone who thinks like me. Here's someone who I share the same, similar values, very similar outlook. Do I have any idea how they are going to respond when their boss says, I'm sorry, you've been working with us for 10 years, but we have to downsize the company. Do I have any idea how they're going to respond to that <coughs> challenge? Do I have any anticipation of my boyfriend or girlfriend, Hassan Kala to be, husband or wife, when they're laid off or their mother or father, God forbid, passes on, do I have any idea how emotionally attached they were that suddenly they fall apart? And I can't believe, look, it's not six months already, get out of your depression. I can't take it. I married you because you're so upbeat, you're so happy and positive, and here you're, to you're totally falling apart. The question I'm throwing out is what is going to really count long-term? Finding someone who's most similar and less different or how I manage the differences that come up which are inevitable because there's no way I can know that you're going to raise children this way until you raise children this way. There is no anticipation. I cannot have any possible Reference. Even if I see how you are with children, I say, well, I'm really attracted to you for your motherly instincts. And guess what? When it comes to your own children, totally falling apart. I can't believe it. But I, I'm, one of the things I married you for is your mother. How do I know? The answer is we don't. So what are we looking for in a spouse? What are we looking for in a potential partner? More similarities, less differences? Or... Is the dating process relate more to who I am and who I'm becoming, who I'm preparing to be as a long-term spouse to whoever is fortunate to marry me? I want to share with you quite a shocking story which, as far as I know, is still Turish Balper and I've never seen it in any safer. But I have it from Rabbi Greenwald in Monsi who was a Chavanerman of the stipler of for many, many years, and Reb Moshe Feinstein, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, and extremely close to Manchester Rosh Shiva in Manchester. Rabbi Siegel, the one who really put the Chofetz Chaim's Shmirsaloshan on the map. And I heard from Rabbi Greenwald the following story that the Chofetz Chaim, his mother was an Almana, and she remarried. And in those days, it wasn't a simple matter for a woman with children to take care of herself having lost a husband. 
and she married someone who was of very coarse character, not, not tremendously refined. And this person who was many years her senior brought a daughter into the new marriage who was quite a few years older than the Chafetz Chaim. And when her new husband saw that the Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir, was a nice kind of a kid, he suggested to his wife a shidduch with his, first, with his daughter from his first marriage to the Chafetz Chaim, and she was broken because he deserved much more. He was a prodigy. He was going somewhere. He had a destiny, he had a, an amazing career ahead of him. A righteous individual <coughs> at a young age and tremendous mind. And she just didn't want to sell him short. And she held back and she was very reluctant. And the Chavis Chaim saw that his mother was upset when he came home, one Ben Asmanim, and she wouldn't reveal what was upsetting her. But the pressure continued to a point where her husband said, either you agree to the match or I divorce you. And the next time the Chavis Chaim came home, he couldn't help notice his mother was very distressed. And he said, Mamla, what, why are you so upset? <coughs> and she couldn't hold back. And she told him the truth. She said, my husband wants his daughter to marry you, and I can't bear the thought. And she broke into uncontrollable tears. And the Chafetz Chaim said six words. Mommy, don't worry. I'll marry her. End of discussion. The Chafetz Chaim married her. Still became the Chafetz Chaim. I'm not suggesting for a moment that this relates to anyone in the room in terms of the caliber of the Chafetz Chaim. The piece I do want to take out which I believe is a principle that is Shavla Kol Nefesh is the following piece. Is it who I marry that's going to make the real difference? Or is it who I am in my personal inner strength in dealing with differences, in handling anger, in enduring irritation, in responding to an insult, in reacting to a hard, harsh word, what's going to be the real measure of a long-term relationship? Who you are in relationship to me, or who I am and who I am still becoming? I'm sure many of you will recall there was a time in your life you had a favorite aunt, a favorite uncle, maybe you still do, a favorite parent, a teacher, someone who somehow touched you and acknowledged a virtue, a quality that perhaps was dormant, wasn't so obvious to yourself and then when they noticed it, what did it do for you? Besides being the, having the feeling of being extremely appreciated, what did it do to your relationship with that person? What did it do to your personal expectations in your relationship to that person? Did it hold you to a lower level or a higher level of expectations? What is the secret that when someone touches a virtue or a quality in us that that makes us feel deeply appreciated? 
in modern psychology there's a new concept that self-image is synonymous to EQ, emotional IQ, as opposed to intelligence quota. And there's a lot of talk about self-esteem synonymous with ability, capabilities. So for example, and I'm not making it wrong, but I want to share with you a very deep insight which is quite shattering to this concept. On the surface, it sounds right. If I don't feel good about my body walking the streets late at night and I go and take a karate class, surely I would feel more confident and therefore increase my self-esteem in relationship to my body. Surely, if I'm earning a better salary and climbing the corporate ladder and receiving acknowledgement from other people, it will increase my self-esteem in the area of finances. Doesn't, that, doesn't one equal the other? Surely if I'm a very good entertainer and I'm paid high bucks for commercials, for television, for cinema, for movies, and I'm adored by millions of people, surely it would increase my self-esteem. And yet we know that one doesn't equal necessarily the other. I don't have to give you examples from the world of entertainment, which is actually the world I come from, my father's a famous actor in England and many, many times I was hired to work in commercials and, and uh, advertising and I will be sharing some of the insights from there. Take Elizabeth Taylor for example, adored by millions of people. Happy? Accomplished? Yes and no. Here's a woman who's been through nine marriages and you'd expect Liz, sorry, young Liz, you must have so much to offer to the world. So much clarity after so many failed relationships. <laughs> and I know I'm speaking to a sensitive audience. What I want to bring out tonight are references from the secular world, which even though we are very defensive in how we expose ourselves, bottom line, is it possible that we're not fully aware how the values of the secular world infiltrate us through the media, newspapers, advertising, commercials. When Elizabeth Taylor had a brain tumor removed, she was asked, what do you think of Sean Connery? And her answer is, Sean Connery, he can put his slippers under my bed any night of the week. Let me ask you, I know Mrs. Sean Connery is not in the audience, but <laughs> Liz Taylor, you're adored by millions of people. You have an opportunity that whatever you say in relationship to relationships, people are going to listen. They're going to evaluate. They're going to consider. This is your two cents on loyalty. This is your clarity after nine marriages on the concept of being there for a spouse? Where are you coming from? We know that raising <coughs> ourselves in salary, in <coughs> possessions, in lifestyle, doesn't change self-esteem. What is real self-esteem? The Torah tells us we're created but selim elokim. 
reflection of God. What does it mean to be a reflection of God? We are a neshama, the neshama was breathed into our nostrils, <coughs> and that neshama is a chilek elokamimal, a posuk from Yehav. But what is this neshama? As a reflection of Hashem, it's a reflection of the unlimited virtues of love, compassion, giving, that is what God is about, that we are capable of demonstrating in our own lives. And therefore, Tzalem Elohim, true self-image, is directly related to how we treat ourselves and other people. So I can be holding a high position in the corporate world and feel rotten about myself because I know I don't treat my wife <coughs> and children right. I can be adored by millions of people and where I am failing in my personal relationships, I know deep down I'm unhappy. Greta Garber was one of the greatest actresses heralded in the world of entertainment, committed suicide. And it goes on. We don't have to look far for examples. It's local. In the newspapers, presidents can be the most powerful people on earth, but to be able to say no and say yes from an inner compass, that's the true measure of power, of inner strength. I know that we don't relate to this because it's completely the secular world. However, what I want to share with you is the following. There's probably no one in the room who watches television. And therefore, I'll be relating to your friends who do. <laughs> <coughs> when I used to work in commercials, and I'm not going to quote the Talmud over here, because then you'd feel I'm lecturing you. Instead, I'm going to quote from the inside and share with you what I know from the script writing room of commercials that will be a little bit of a glimpse into how powerful the media has been, is, and will continue to be if we're not at least <coughs> at the base of awareness of how powerful that is and asking ourselves, where is that shaping my values, <coughs> my mindset, attitudes, and possibly decision-making process? I'll share with you the following. Is anyone here who's involved in advertising on a professional basis? Yeah, so maybe you'll be able to corroborate uh, what I'm going to share with you. Some of you probably have heard of Saatchi and Saatchi. They used to be the biggest advertisers in the world. My, uh, my mother's best friends with Mrs. Saatchi, father and mother of the four sons. So I used to work in commercials for them. I don't say that to impress you. I rather want to qualify my credentials for speaking about commercials. Commercials are created with a very simple formula. In fact, it's so simple, there's almost not a commercial that has been designed without consulting this formula. And I'm not referring to commercials alone. I refer to magazine photos, advertisements, still photos, on buses, and when you're going down the FDR, and you see placards selling drinks and cigarettes. The formula is very simple, and the secular world is more aware of what's going on over there, but what I'm going to share with you are insights which are less known to the public, even though it's accessible, this information, but when people find out or know, very often they're outraged. 
Uh, for, the formula works very simply like this. Psychiatrists, psychologists and therapists are hired to identify all national hang-ups of different target groups in society, male, female, age, social status, financial status. That's basically the criteria that they use. A long list is made of the hang-ups, negative emotions that people experience. Loneliness, depression, feelings of unloved, I'm ugly, and therefore all that will be associated to that. <coughs> feelings of guilt that I don't pay enough attention to my children. Feelings of not being successful, of not having meaning in my life. Long list, depressing. And on the other side of the page, a parallel list of the solutions. Simple enough so far, you don't need brilliant psychologists for this. How do you sell the product? Very easy. First we identify, sorry, first they identify who it is they're selling the product to. And once they've identified the age group, gender, social status, etc. We take the hang-up we depict it somehow in the commercial, I'll give you a few examples in a moment, and then we take the product, it makes no difference what the product is because we're not selling products, sorry, they are not selling products. They heavily associate the product with the solution. So that what we're really seeing on screen, in the commercial, in a still photo, going down the street, waiting at the bus stop, flipping through Time magazine, reading through the newspapers, is a powerful association of product, pleasure, will solve this problem. As simple as it sounds, and probably you would imagine it only appeals to shallow audiences. <coughs> Do you believe that's true? Glad to hear it. Let me share with you one or two quick examples, and we're going to relate this deeply to relationships. In England, there's a commercial that's done for British Telecom. Some of you may have heard of it. It's the equivalent of AT&T in Europe. It's a good product, by the way. I'm not here to knock products. And they came up with a following commercial. It's called The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And it goes something like this. I'll animate it somewhat and it'll, it'll wake some of you. <laughs> Shh, don't, I didn't mean to wake you. I'm sorry. It goes something like this. You'll recall The Hunchback, if you read the book or saw the Disney version. The Hunchback is in the tower and is in total panic. This ugly creature, you cannot imagine, he's so ugly. Spielberg must have been by this one. He is so ugly that when you first look at him, you squint. It's just disgusting. And this ugly creature is in total panic. Any moment now, the murderous mob who are marching down the cobbled streets are going to come with their fiery torches and their bloodthirsty eyes and burn and tear this creature apart. And while he's in this panic, suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, in the middle of the commercial, the telephone rings. Remember, this is 400 years ago. He pulls, thank you, Salila, he pulls the receiver off the wall. And on the other end of the line goes something like this. A sweet 16-year-old. I love you. 
I love you. I love you. <laughs> he pulls the receiver away from his face and he declares, She loves me. And the entire mob who are about to tear him apart and burn him stop short of the entrance. And there, with smiles across their face, scream out in unison, She loves you! She loves you! <laughs> and just before the end of the commercial, which cost almost a million dollars, goes across the screen the following caption in an English accent, which I can do quite well. <laughs> if you want to be loved by someone, buy British Telecom. <laughs> End of commercial. What? <laughs> was there anyone in the audience who was offended or outraged by that commercial, or you found it entertaining on the whole? Entertaining. Entertaining. Agreed? Okay. Let's go back to the script writing room and understand actually what was going on when they designed this commercial. I'm t telling you this from the inside. I can't, I don't know which page of them to quote it from. According to our statistics, Miss, Mr. 18-year-old, you wake up in the morning, oh my gosh, what happened to my face? Oh, how will ever anyone be attracted to this? And we saw the pain, oh my gosh. You're right, since there was ever an ugly person on earth, no one was as ugly as you. And we were so hurt by all that's associated to this ugliness. Possibly you would never have a relationship. Anyone would never want to be living with you forever. That pain hurts us so much we were motivated to spend a million dollars on a commercial just for you. And it goes like this. Buy British Telecom and we'll tell you you're loved. Really? Now, let me ask you. This is a British advertisement. Are the English so shallow... No, perhaps don't answer that one. Uh, uh, have the English such a shallow education that they're not going to see through this and they go out and buy British Telecom because of the Hunchback of Notre Dame? Do you really believe that? Hold off your verdict. Let's go a little bit local. Calvin Klein. <laughs> I'm going to be careful over here because it's sensitive. <laughs> <coughs> Calvin Klein came up with the following concept. Black and white still photos. Do you know how much money that saves on color processing? <laughs> Black and white still photos with two messages. I'm not going to spell out the two messages in full. <laughs> but there you have depicted a young male or female looking suggestive. Now, I don't want, don't want anyone to look, but if you know someone who looks, they'll tell you, they'll confirm, how do you know, Rabbi? Listen, you're, walking, you're driving in Manhattan, you stop at a red line, the bus goes in front of you. <laughs> There's two messages. It's about to happen. It just did. In reference to you know what. Do you think there might be a few hundred thousand or possibly millions of individuals who relate to the message that's bouncing off that photo. 
When Calvin Klein walked into the advertising agency, I guarantee you, when they asked him, what do you want to sell, Mr. Klein? And he said, underwear. <laughs> How are you supposed to motivate an entire nation to get excited about this product? <laughs> and the answer is, we're not selling underwear, we're not selling clothes, we're selling an emotion, an expectation. Actually, I gave this presentation to a very secular audience a number of months ago under a different title, When Is Love Real? And a lady came up to me afterwards and said, I want to tell you, I'm an attorney on Calvin Klein's budget. <laughs> and you're right on the money. That's exactly how we design the commercials. You can understand why they've been in the courts because of the suggestion that's behind it. What I'm bringing out over here <coughs> is the following. I could give you example after example after example and they're very entertaining but the point really is the following. How many commercials has the average American kid, I know this doesn't relate to anyone in the audience, but those of you who have friends who do know what I'm talking about, you'll be able to explain this to them. How many commercials has the average American kid seen before the age of 10? Approximately 250,000. Actually, if you make a calculation of the number of hours children are home, you'll be able to see that it's easily that. 10 years old, almost not a consumer yet. Figure it out. 250,000 lies, 250,000 mixed wires where the deepest cravings of the human being to be loved, appreciated, respected, to have meaning in life, to feel successful, to have companionship. The deepest cravings in our lives are being tampered with because we're seeing and a powerful association to a product. Listen to this scenario, and I ask you if you know anyone who relates to this. When I'm 16 and graduate high school, I'll be so happy. When I get a job, I'll be so happy. When I get out of this job, I'll be so happy. When I get a boss who appreciates me, I'll be so happy. When I get a date that I really like, I'll be so happy. You know, when I get engaged, I'll be so happy. Wow, when I get married, I'll be so happy. When I get divorced, I'll be so happy. <laughs> oh, when I have children, I'll be so happy. When I get these kids out of the house, I'll be so happy. Wait a minute. When does happiness begin? Adam yeshlei mana matayim Kailas Rabba, Perikalif, paragraph 24. A person has 100, wants 200. Guess what happens when I get 200? Yeah. Now, I know this doesn't relate to anyone here, but credit cards. Have you ever received the following in the mail? You have been pre-approved for $25,000. I see some of you know what I'm talking about. What are credit cards? They're not credit cards, they're debt cards. How many people are going to respond to the following offer? You have been pre-approved for $25,000 debt on top of all your other debts. 
But if you respond before 31st of January, you will be entitled to a special rate of 3.9% above prime rate interest over what you're paying. Oh, so exciting! How many people are going to open the envelope and respond to the 1 800 number? <laughs> when it's told to you this way, a few less. What was life insurance originally called? <coughs> you guessed it, death insurance. How many people, when they were answered the door and were told about death insurance, <laughs> had this feeling of evocation? I re that sounds interesting. What are you selling? Death? No, thank you. Nothing to it. So we changed it to life insurance. You see, it's only words, but the association of what it means in the mind is very powerful. Michael Jackson was paid how much money for 186 seconds of his precious time to wiggle his body in front of the screen to a Pepsi commercial. And this man of integrity refused to hold the Pepsi can because it's not healthy. <laughs> and was only paid 11 million dollars for 186 seconds of time and if you don't believe commercials work what do you think Sony did when they saw the sales of Pepsi over a three-week period signed him up they signed up Michael Jackson for a 10-year contract two billion dollars if you're not sure if commercials work think again why do they work and the answer is if you ask an advertising agency do you really think? Do you really think people are buying Pepsi because of Michael Jackson? Do you really think Hunchback and Notre Dame? Do you really think Calvin Klein? That's why we're, you really believe that? And the answer is we don't care. We don't care, and this is the absolute truth. We don't care, they don't care. They don't care if you don't buy the product because of their commercial, because people will anyway. How do they know? Because if they've had people brought up in the commercial media, by the age of 10, teenager, there's been enough slaps in the face of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, is it possible that even if you and I did not watch six hours TV, that the value system that's been wired up in those mindsets has infiltrating the Jewish community heavily, so that happiness, meaning, virtue, quality of life, has been deeply associated to lifestyle and not who we become by the choices we make in employing the God-given Bechira that we actually have to control anger to look for the good in ourselves to make a choice to change our diet add more exercise be more careful less coke to make a choice to look for virtue to make a choice to control our tongue with Lashon Hara. Newspapers, very briefly. The power of newspapers is such. Where I put my watch? Thank you. Someone's watching. Newspapers. What's the power of newspapers? Would newspapers sell as well if they were reporting all the good news? <coughs> So to sell a newspaper, what do we have to do? If there would be a violation of an isha, would it get to the front page? But if it were nine times on the same night, 
in Central Park, you've got a much better chance of it being reported. What's the point? Newspapers are in the business of selling bad news. Not always accurate, often exaggerated. And what happens when you and I are exposed, either by choice or by what we hear on the news, or by the newspapers themselves? What happens to our expectations of morality in society, especially when leaders are caught in violation of some of the basics of morality and ethics? What happens to our expectations of our leadership? Does it increase or decrease? Do we become more sensitive to purity of values of Kedusha and Tara? Or do we become less sensitive as we get more exposed? If there's any Israeli in the audience who was in any of the wars and can relate how they freaked out the first time they saw a dead person and minutes later saw another person killed, will tell you an amazing insight. They were already getting used to it. Chazal tell us, Kol Haraya Saita. Any person does make a difference, child, man, woman, or Rosh Hashiva, who sees a Saita, a woman who's only accused of adultery, Yazi et has to increase something of sensitivity in their holy lives of Kedusha, otherwise it's going to decrease our sensitivity <coughs> to our expectations of society and guess what, when it gets more and more local are we more outraged if we violate or less outraged? Yes, what newspapers and the media successfully do is desensitize our ability to have clarity on the deepest issues that are pivotal in relationships. Sensitivity, kindness, generosity, love, affection, appreciation, gratitude, forgiveness, saying thank you, saying sorry. What's become now known as the EQ, the emotional <laughs> IQ, the bottom line is, thank you, the midot, midas of a person are the measure of a person. Our kindness, our giving, our personalities. And these are the long-term ingredients in every relationship that is long-term. There are no secrets, there's no magic. That's the bottom line. Is it possible? that I could be wired up either through environment where I'm coming from in such a way that I become desensitized to what is real clarity and what I'm looking for. I will never forget, some of you remember the Beatles, I know this is a religious audience but some of you still remember the Beatles, am I wrong? I, never I will never forget the Beatles, Ringo Starr, Paul McCartney, good for you ma'am. <laughs> Please close your ears for the following. <coughs> when we look around us, it's unbelievable. All the lyrics, almost without exception, the lyrics that are contained in music 
are almost always a one-way street what you're going to give me I love you baby the way you wear your jeans I can't, I can't live without you I can't live I can't live anymore what are you talking about you look at Shakespeare look for any clarity in the arts for relationships and what does Shakespeare turn to Romeo and Juliet well what's the bottom line there if you can't have the one you love kick the bucket <laughs> where's the clarity in that suicide that's serious there's only two billion other males females on this planet well for Jews maybe somewhat narrowed down to 14 million but what sort of clarity is now of course Shakespeare's in the entertainment business not the values we're not selling values we're selling entertainment <coughs> and it's sa the same throughout what we allow ourselves to be exposed to is a decision to sensitize or desensitize our relationship skills our relationship antenna for what's virtuous what's a true long-term quality and God forbid to replace it for something transient, temporary, and possibly only an image on the outside. The Marlboro Man. What's the image that's sold in the Marlboro Man? You smoke this cigarette, you're going to look so cool, every female is going to be running after you. And if it's not Marlboro, Newport, alive with pleasure, you're going to have this woman flung into your arms all the commercials are basically saying buy me and you will enjoy this diet A drink B cigarette C car D vacation E we will equal happiness, pleasure meaning social status a feeling of accomplishment and yet what happens when people buy the product subconsciously and does it change me internally? Yeah. Absolutely not. So am I at least where I was before I bought the product? Or am I actually worse off? Because there was a certain expectation subconsciously that was not met. Mm. I've identified the media, commercials, newspapers as some of the sabotages for clarity when it comes to the relationships because what's really going to count long term are the virtues and qualities that really equal love because what is love? what is love? we know Rav Dessler, giving is love giving appreciation noticing the virtue in the other person triggers off the feeling in the other person that I've been acknowledged for something that's really deeply true in me whether it's your responsibility, whether it's your financial responsibility, whether it's how you take care of your body, whether it's how you relate to other people, whether it's how you manage people, whether it's how you answer back without anger. Whatever is the virtue or the midah that a person demonstrates, ultimately, when another person recognizes that, then the person who has that virtue feels appreciated. Who's the one who gets the most appreciation? Who's the one who gets the most admiration? Who's the one who gets the most honor, respect? Hamechabed itabriyas, the one who gives the most to others, the most appreciation. It's reciprocal. Kamaimil panim, just like the faces towards a Cain lave Adam, so is how we feel. When I feel animosity towards you, I'm not going to be able to hide it easily for long. 
when I'm looking for the virtue in you and you recognize that that's what's going to deepen and what happens if I find deep virtues loyalty love concern empathy listening sensitivity sense of humor caring gratitude appreciation sorry acknowledgement admiration there are so many that equal a real love relationship that I think what the Chofetz Chaim was teaching us is that it's not who I marry that's going to equal a happy relationship it's who I am and who I'm becoming that's going to be the real measure because guess what can I change you? has it ever worked? isn't that amazing? <laughs> and yet which recipe do I try when it didn't work 3,000 times? the same recipe? NO! so what does work? why does changing myself work? because you're responding to someone else so when I change myself you're not dealing with the same me you remember Sari Menu? she denied that she laughed wait a minute, the Torah actually put in writing that you laughed Sarah, so how can you say I didn't laugh? how can you outright deny it? aren't you in touch with yourself? aren't you in touch with your feelings? how can you deny that? and the answer is, says the Kotzka Rebbe as soon as she realized that she made a mistake she let go and when she was accused of laughing, she said that wasn't me that's not the same me anymore I let go it's not Madua, it's not why, it's Lama, it's where I'm going I'm moving forward, that wasn't me, that's the old me unfortunately there's a, a tremendous loss of confidence in the institution of marriage altogether in the last 20 years divorce marital strife is on such an increase that is it any wonder or blame that the dating process becomes that much more of a detective work that much more caution is exercised it's only understood so what's the way around this? when the fact of the matter is what happens if I myself am scared of marriage consciously, subconsciously because my own parents are divorced or aren't happily married and even if they're not the 50% statistic in the secular world of divorcees does that make the other 50% automatically happily marriages? and what happens where even if my parents are happily married I see my peers getting married Mazel tov! Mazel tov! five weeks down the line, five months down the line oh my gosh I can't believe what they're going through or it's other members of the family, siblings, and it's so local is it difficult to understand that I have my foot on the brake at the same time that the other foot's on the accelerator I've got to be very careful I don't want to become a statistic, I don't want to get hurt I don't want to get married a second time I want to make it work the first time but what's going to be the ultimate measure? my confidence in oh good, I found the right person or my confidence in finding <coughs> the right in every potential person the ability to look for the good and turn around even the differences because ultimately how different you are 
Is that what's going to make me happy or less happy? Or how I handle you? How you handle me? What's going to be the real measure? What was the confidence that the Chavetz Chaim had because he was a tzaddik already? Or is there an essential, pivotal, fundamental <coughs> element of marriage which is be married because I am the one who does the changing and you will change in response and therefore it's less important who I marry than being married and then working in that not easy, not simple, frightening but forgive me for being honest I want to share with you a list of four powerful ways to create breakthrough dating. I want to give you a phone number of a therapist. 1-800-ALMIGHTY. <laughs> the ultimate therapist. Now, have you heard it before? I know. And I'm not going to say it again. I think this might be with a slightly different slant. We all are familiar, we've been quoted many times over the Gemara Moed Katan. It says every single person has been allotted a spouse, a partner, in marriage. In fact, it's interesting, the actual language there is that every single day, a bus curl, a divine voice, calls out who is matched for who. And one of the questions asked is, well, why are you calling it out every day? And the answer is, in case I haven't met that person, I might, God forbid, think they are not there anymore. And therefore, we're told in advance that the announcement is made every day so that I should know it's still there. He's still there, she's still there. And that's why we have the expression, mitziat hazivug. Why don't we say searching for a partner? Why is it finding a partner? because you can only find something that's there. <coughs> and are we talking about finding the right partner or are we talking about finding the good in every potential partner? Because all I've got to go on is whatever good I can glean in your character, in your personality, and when I notice that good and you acknowledge that I am excited by your good, because I appreciate and I verbalize and I explain in descriptive language what it is I like about you, admire, appreciate, respect. In the law of reciprocation, it will come back. But I only have that to go with. Because I don't know what you will bring, good and bad, after the marriage. Because I don't know how you're going to respond to many different setbacks that might be on the cards. Medical, God forbid, physical, financial raising children and don't tell me you know someone who has it all and if you do please give me their phone number <laughs> I want to find out what they're doing right <coughs> because we all know Olam Hazer is Olam Anisayan it's not a place where it's a rose garden and it's perfect all the time so the only question really is looking for the right in every potential partner marrying and dealing with the differences 1-800-ALMIGHTY means please Hashem as I enter this date give me clarity, help me help me, help me, help me 
What are we asking for help for? The breakthrough I want to suggest is the following. What's most pivotal in all the Torah Shabal Peh, all the Mishnayas and Gomorrah, is the power to ask a question. You know how it is in Yeshiva? The guy who has the answers is not considered the genius. The one who stumps the Rosh Yeshiva with a question which no one else thought of, wow! Why? Because the power of a good question means you're onto something. Please Hashem, help me to ask the right questions before I go into this date. For example, See, questions prepare us. I wonder how this date, number 349, <laughs> how this date is going to give me a totally different clarity about me. A new insight that I was not aware of about me. Another question. I wonder how this date is going to give me a deep appreciation of a quality that I did not notice till now in that person. What are we actually doing when we ask these questions? In advertising there's actually a concept called pre-framing which is now spilled out over into psychology which means you take a picture, it's the same picture either way, but you, if it's not getting attention you change the frame to get attention and suddenly the picture is being appreciated. The concept of pre-framing is that by asking the right question, we prepare the mind to go in a different direction. So when I ask God, why me? Why is this happening to me? Guess where my brain starts searching? Well, because I'm undeserving, because God doesn't like me, because I'm being punished, because I've done sins in my life. Are those the answers that are going to push us forward? Is it Madua or is it Lama? How can I find deep clarity in every shidduch that doesn't work that will bring me closer to what I need to focus on in the ingredients of a long-term relationship? What will I notice about me? What will I notice about you? Help me to notice the good. Don't let me be blind to the clues of the bad. <coughs> One person once asked, this man I'm dating for a number of dates, we're very close to engagement, but something really bothers me. His anger. He's short-tempered. Do you think he's right for me? And the answer was, do you have the confidence that in a relationship with this man, in marriage, you will find whatever it takes to handle that anger? Because that's more important than finding a way to change his anger. And as long as I don't want to take responsibility for my Bechira in the relationship, guess what I'm really doing? When you change, I'll be happy. When you control your anger, when you start showing me more respect, then I'll be able to respect you. Now, I know no one's ever heard of this before, but some of you have friends who know what I'm talking about. The point being that when I make you wrong, and I tell you that you've got to change for me to be happy, who's responsible for making this relationship work? Who am I making responsible and how much effort am I willing to employ? So as long as it's the other person's faults that have to change, I am going to move on to the next relationship. Where I may not notice is that marriage is an institution that 
even once I found the right person, there's plenty afterwards that I'm going to be hurt by, and the measure is still going to be the same measure. How strong am I to handle the differences? Thirdly, to increase the value of the item you're selling. When we sell a product, how do you beat your competition? Now, I know we're not necessarily in competition to other people because everyone's got their own zivug, but when I'm trying to sell myself, and forgive me for putting in that language, what am I really doing? I'm selling a message of what value I have to offer in a relationship. So, in increasing the value of who I am becoming as a person, in my mitters. That basically is my personal growth that I'm offering in a relationship. So my endurance of irritation, my conquering anger, my finding the good, my being forgiving, even when you make a mistake, which is unforgivable, or almost unforgivable, <coughs> is what's going to create more value and make me more valuable to the other person. So it all comes back down to who I'm becoming in my own life that is really who I am is what's going to make the difference, not who she or he is. Do you remember coming home and showing mummy that picture and she said, Oh, Sarala, what a beautiful picture. You're such a brilliant artist. Did you believe mummy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you believed her? <laughs> Scenario number two. Oh, Sandra, what a beautiful picture. Look at that sun shining. It looks just like your smile. Such a happy day. And look at the straight lines of the house. Wow, this is beautiful. You really know how to draw. Which of the two are you convinced by? Descriptive praise quantifies for us what the other person loves, appreciates, admires, respects in us. And that's the love relationship. Investing more and more of that is what is creating more appreciation. I'll end off on the following. In conclusion. The little aleph that we put before a verb equals I will. <coughs> I will means I will. What's the difference between I will and I want? What's the difference between I hope and I expect? What perhaps, what's the difference between I would like it and I will? I would like to be married, I will get married. Can you hear a difference? Is it only semantics of language? Or do I actually feel a different <coughs> level of responsibility and willingness to take action when I say I will as opposed to <coughs> I would like to, I hope so. That Aleph which we learned from Ruth when she said Eilech, where you go, I will go. Where you're buried, I will be buried. That Aleph when we put it before the verb, changes our level of responsibility. I will, no matter what, invest whatever it takes till. There were three ladies on Broadwalk and each one was showing off how much their son respects them. And how could they show it? Well, I want to tell you what my son did for me on my birthday, says one mother to the other. My son so special. <laughs> he turns up in a stretch limo. <coughs> he knocks on my door. He says, Mom, I'm taking you to the most expensive kosher restaurant in Manhattan. Oh, that's my son. And that's how we celebrated my party. 
I come to the restaurant, all my best friends and family are there, and we had such a ball. He loves me. What did your son do for your birthday? So, second mother says, my son, <laughs> oh, do you know what he did? He gets me a ticket, first class on Concord, takes me to the Ritz Hotel, kosher catered, all my friends and family from all over the world. We had a weekend party, can't believe what a time we had. Oh, that's my son. <laughs> and they both turned to Mrs. Hershkovitz, who everyone knows they had a terrible relationship, and says, uh, Mrs. Hershkovitz, uh, how does your son show respect to you on your birthday? Huh, my son doesn't have to wait for no birthdays. My son, he pays $175 an hour, four times a week to a therapist, and all he talks about is me. <laughs> <laughs> I am the only one who is able to make a choice about my future. If it's my parents who, got, who did things, messed up, teachers, environment, schooling, I'm taking responsibility away from the Bechira that is God-given and telling the world when they change, I'll be able to move forward. Bechira is ours. Marriage is not easy. Dating is not easy. The bottom line is, the gift of who we are is God's gift to us. <coughs> what we do with where we came from, the people that were in our lives and did whatever they did, encouraged or didn't, fed, nurtured or didn't, who we become with the choices we make is our gift back to ourselves first and it's the gift of who we are preparing ourselves for our future spouse. Thank you for your patience. Okay. Thank you very much, Rabbi Uriah. You certainly, I think you opened my eyes in, some, in many ways. Um, I just want to make a couple of announcements before we continue. We'll have about 10 minutes of questions. If you have any more questions, you can pass them up. Um, but before we go further, I want to let you know that there are upcoming events next, this coming Tuesday night, next week, uh, we're going to have an event for men only, and that's uh, Shai Astra, who's a, uh, who's a social worker, will be talking to men on the topic of a burnout, the rekindling of hope. Uh, some of you may have heard him, but uh, some of you may, he's been given groups on this, and he's, he's coming here this coming uh, some excellent questions. I'll ask them in the order that they, they came. We'll have to give short answers. They deserve much more though. It seems that you are implying that one could marry anyone. Is that what you mean to say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> short. <laughs> and I will add, and I will add that there's a minimum. There is a minimum, and the minimum is simple. It's what we already know. Basic Yirat Shemaim, obvious demonstration that they are on a growthful path in terms of working on Midas, and even though you won't hear it from everyone, that they have someone that they are connected to. The reason why is, especially for the men, 
it's been noted many times that when uh, a single man is learning Torah consistently and has a rabbi that they're connected to that that rabbi's help is, help is helpful in pushing them over the edge when it comes to dating in making the commitment that's really needed and in marriage itself in marriage itself many times there are problems where a spouse has a husband who is not connected to a community this is something that's mentioned many times by Rabbi Victor Miller because then who do I turn to? We have to find a mutual friend or therapist, counselor, whatnot. But yes, my basic answer is it's the right in every potential person that we're really looking for and that by changing ourselves we can almost handle anything. And the proof is, the proof is the Jewish people are compared to an, an olive. When you squeeze an olive, what comes out? I know, olive oil. But what what determines the quality of that oil? The ripeness of the olive. The strength that we have created by who are we, we are becoming in our own conquering ourselves, whether it's anger, whether <coughs> it's appreciation, whether it's verbalizing appreciation where, where we just think the other person understands that we are thankful, whatever it is, it's us who we are becoming that is the inner strength and therefore whatever adversity comes in a spouse who's different to us what's going to come out is whatever's inside so it's building our own selves which is most important and then a person can almost take anything now am I speaking from experience? the answer is yes we, we all know what it's like how we measure up to difficulty is who we are not necessarily how difficult the situation really is that was a long one. Doesn't, isn't anger a sign of arrogance and akin to idol worship? Should someone choose to spend his or her life with an angry person? Good question. Excellent question. Of course, you don't want to spend your life with an angry person. Anger actually is a choice. If I say you make me angry, what am I really saying? Who's responsible for my anger? You're responsible. But wait a minute. Do you know why I'm really angry with you? Because I can't handle the intimacy of this particular subject. And therefore, when I get angry, it puts a stop on us going any further. And that's one of the major reasons I'll get angry with you. How can a person break through that anger? The answer is, Chavis Chaim says, a gentle voice. But it's not easy. Someone said sharp words to you. Someone insulted you. Someone insulted your mother, your father your brother, your boss, your, your dog. Now what? <laughs> answering with a gentle voice and not answering with sharp words in, in response. What will happen long term if a person over time learns to control their response to someone who's ill-mannered, ill-tempered? It's us changing ourselves that will affect the change in the other person. So there will always things. There will always be things, probably, that will anger one spouse. You don't have to be sold to living with an angry spouse all one's life. It depends on how I respond to that spouse's anger. How can a balas tshuva overcome the stigma adorned them by the community and become accepted as an individual and as a, pos a possible shidduch? I think my answer to that is: the more I accept myself as someone worthy and deserving, the less it will matter what other people say. 
oh, you're Sephardi and you're Balas Tshuva and uh, you're 28. What do you expect? <laughs> and the answer is, if I'm a Balas Tshuva and I'm Sephardi and I'm 28, and I'm w I've worked a lot on myself, and I've got a lot of inner strength, and I can stand up for myself, and I'm not going to be abusive, sharp in the way I respond to difficulty, I know in myself that I'm deserving of better. So don't give me a deaf son of a Rosh Hashiva. Give me a suggestion that is on par to who I am and what I deserve. How do you suggest that each member of this group, all persons in this room, work on changing themselves for the better with the goal of being an even better spouse? Good question. <coughs> Love is appreciation. It's not more than that. Appreciation is the deepest giving. When you're on a date, and you're saying, oh my God, who set me up with this person? I can't believe it. <laughs> Two hours and 45 bucks. <coughs> this is crazy. This is so crazy. That's one way of responding. Another way of responding, this is fascinating. This is absolutely fascinating. There has to be, there has to be something that I can take from tonight that I'll go to bed with and say, Rabbi Shalom, you know what? There was a virtue in that person which I've never seen the way it was expressed, the way she, he expressed it. If I set myself up that way, if I pre-frame myself up, if I ask myself that question, what I'm looking for is what I'm expecting. Look for a virtue and then, once I've identified, acknowledged, appreciate it with as much description as possible. Don't overdo it, but the point being, what does the other person want? The same thing I want, appreciation, to be acknowledged for the virtues that I do have. And that comes from taking a personal interest in what's going on in their lives, what they've accomplished, what their aspirations are. And instead of moving from one question to the next, take a deep listening and interest in whatever specifically they're talking about. So appreciation is what makes a person feel loved. Last question, where should one set their limits with how much imperfection to accept in another person? Especially if one isn't sure what imperfections one can handle. Good question. Where do you set the limits? When I went to the Master Shiva Rabbi Segal Hatzal, uh, I asked a similar type of question. He told me, you understand when you look for a spouse, look for Yerat Shemaim, look for Midas Tavis. I asked him, well what about her looks? So he said, if she has chain, if she, if she has a beauty on the face which reflects the personality, those are the three main criteria. What about all the imperfections that I, I don't know about? The answer is, you can date and date and date with the same person. Will you know how they're going to respond to adversity after marriage? Will you really know? Everyone knows we don't have the information and we don't, we don't have the Navur. And therefore, the real question is, how do I make myself stronger in dealing with other people's imperfections and my own? And not, when will I find the person that is absolutely right for me or close to right for me or most similar to me or less different to me? Thank you for your patience. There's no time for more questions.